the rest of us, as we remain, can turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Our text this morning is chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, through the end of the chapter, as we finish another segment of this letter together. If you please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. This is the very word of God. It is true. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative over our lives. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word. We pray, Lord, that You would open our minds, that we would know Your will here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This may be the first time that you've heard this passage, or perhaps heard it preached upon, or it may be the fifth or the tenth time. But I suspect, if this is the first time you're looking at this particular passage, or the tenth, when you look at it, after you're done, you're prepared to sort of scratch your head and say, what's going on here? Christ preaching? Who are the spirits in prison? What does Noah have to do with all this? What's with baptism? This is a difficult passage. It's probably the most difficult passage that I've come across now here in my short ministry with you. So difficult that, as you can see, it it turned my normal black suit a lighter color when I looked at it. But in all seriousness, this is a very difficult and deep passage. And I think there's a reason why God gives us these sorts of passages. It forces us to slow down. It forces us to look carefully. And it forces us to do something that sometimes we're not entirely clear on doing. And that is, oftentimes, the most difficult questions have simple answers. You know, I think that's even one of the rules of science or laws of science, that you take the most simple explanation to a problem. You don't make it more complicated than it is. And that's the case here for us this morning. We're going to look at this passage. We're going to see what's going on with the preaching. We're going to look at who the spirits in prison are. We're going to look at what baptism is. But I want you to not forget here this morning that this passage comes in a long line of texts that we've been looking at. Texts in which Peter tells us of the greatness of the Gospel, of how it is proclaimed both by word and deed in our homes, 
at our jobs, in our nation, in our marriages. And as we looked last week, that we have a good answer to give, an answer that takes its place both in word and in deed. So what I would like us to see this morning are three things. First, as we look at verse 18, we will see the message. We'll see the message that Peter brings to us, the message of the gospel. Then the second thing we'll look at is the bringing of the message. It's not just that the message is there, it is brought to us. We'll look at the bringing of the message, especially with preaching. And then thirdly, we're going to look at a picture of that message. A picture of preaching. A picture of the gospel. Not dissimilar to what we have this morning in a picture of the gospel laid before us in the Lord's table. So we'll look at the message itself, the bringing of the message, and then pictures of the message. Well, let's dive in then by looking here at verse 18. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Well, what is this message? Peter encapsulates the Gospel by saying first that Christ died and rose. That Christ has died and that Christ is risen. And he begins by telling us of Christ's death. He says, "...for Christ also suffered once for sins." This word here for suffered, perhaps you have suffered in your translation, perhaps you have died in your translation. This is one of these situations where we look at this and we say, well, suffered doesn't look at all like died. What's going on here? But in the Greek, it's really only one small syllable. But it really doesn't matter whether your translation says suffered or whether it says died. It really means the same thing because the suffering that is being talked about here is Christ's death. It is the suffering of the cross because Peter defines it for us. He says Christ also suffered once. It is the great suffering of Jesus that is meant. Peter wants us to focus upon the cross and what was done there. He could have pointed us to That Christ had to bear up with sinners around Him all the time. Seven days a week. 24 hours a day. Have you ever felt frustrated by that? Perhaps you're driving along the highway and you can't understand why everyone is so completely rude. You've experienced that if you've ever tried to cross Mason at 5 o'clock. No one wants to let you in. Perhaps you've seen others come up to you and they just have no concern for anyone around them. And you wonder, how do these people go through life? Well, now imagine if the Lord Jesus Christ is surrounded by sinners. And He's perfect in every way. That's suffering. But Peter doesn't focus us there. He focuses us on the great act of suffering that the Lord Jesus had. It's the suffering that He focused us on in chapter 2 and verse 23. When He suffered, He did not threaten. Our Lord Jesus Christ died. But He didn't just die, period. He died the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. This should be motivation for us because the Lord Jesus Christ has suffered on our behalf. The message is that Jesus 
has died, the just for the unjust. But it doesn't end there, does it? No. Jesus is risen. He was put to death in the flesh. But now, He is made alive in the Spirit. Being put to death in the flesh may remind us right now of our suffering. Perhaps you're suffering right now. Maybe your knees hurt. Maybe your back hurts. Maybe you've got a really bad cold. Maybe your marriage isn't all you thought it should be. Maybe exams didn't go as well as you wanted them to last month. But you see, our suffering is not our end. The difficulties that we face in a world filled with sin, in a world filled with difficulties and pain, is not the end. Because even as Jesus Christ was put to death in the flesh, so He was made alive in the Spirit. And so we are to be like Him. That this is not our end. We look forward to the glory that is to come. We might even say that Jesus was not just made alive in the Spirit, but that He was made alive by the Spirit. By the same Holy Spirit that gives us life, that works in us regeneration, life, health. This is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that brings Jesus from death to life. This is the message that Christ died, that Christ is risen. But there's also the fact that Christ has died for a purpose. You see, Peter says that Christ suffered once for sins, that He might bring us to God. You see, Jesus died for a purpose, and that purpose is us. He did not die for a principle, like some political theory. He did not die for equality. He did not even die for freedom. He did not even die for forgiveness as a concept. He died for you, Christian. He died for me. There is a purpose there. There's nothing vague about the Lord Jesus Christ's death. We don't want to leave that in the realm of vagueness. Jesus' death is not some comfortable, fuzzy feeling. His resurrection is not some warm glow. No, it is a death for us. It is purposeful. If we think about this, it helps us when we go through our own sufferings and difficulties. Doesn't it? Because we know that the Lord brings difficulties into our lives for a purpose. Sometimes it's to sanctify us. Sometimes it's to provide opportunities to testify to God's faithfulness. Sometimes it's just to make us slow down and not get caught up in the things of the world. God can do that to you. He can take a job from you. He can take a house from you. He can even take your health from you at times to bring your focus back upon Him. But these difficulties have a purpose. God is working things together for our good. This purpose in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, this purpose in His resurrection is to bring us to God. Notice what Peter says. He didn't just die for us. He died for us that we might be brought to God. God paid a cost to bring us to Himself. God desires a relationship with us. When Satan whispers to you that you really don't have much value, that you really don't have it all together, 
your relationships aren't right. That your problems are insurmountable. You need to remember here the truth of this message, this message of the Gospel, that God Himself sent His Son who died on a cross and rose again that we might be brought to Him. That's the value that God places on His people. He desires to have a relationship with them. This is such a powerful message that it shouldn't surprise us that only in places in the world where the Bible, where Christianity has taken root, is there anything resembling human rights. Only where God tells us that people have value, that life has value, are there rights that pertain to people. If you go over to India, for example, there are whole groups of people that are thought to be just a little bit better in some cases, just a little bit worse than certain animals. If you go over into other places that have not had gospel influence, like deepest Africa, or parts of China that haven't been touched by the gospel, you notice that life doesn't have value, that people don't have value. You can also see this in places where the gospel has receded. In places like the Netherlands, which was once a bastion of the gospel and now is a place where people who are old are put out of their misery because they're seen to have no value. But you see, God says people have value. They are made in my image, says the Lord. And I have redeemed for myself a people and I want them to be brought to me. This is the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ has died, that Jesus Christ is risen, and that He has done this to bring us to God. Does that message thrill your heart each Sunday, each Monday? I hope so, because if it does, it encourages us to bring the message to others. You see, Peter talks about how the message is brought. He talks about the bringing of the message here in verse 19. He says, this Jesus, who has died and who is risen was made alive in the Spirit, in which, that is, in the Spirit, He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. This is how the message is brought. This is the bringing of the message. And we see that the message is brought through the critical importance of preaching. We've talked about giving a reason for the hope that is within us. We've talked about living that out in our lives. And here, Peter focuses on the great importance of preaching. You see, if we take this two verses out of its context, we start to think up fanciful things. Jesus went and strolled around in hell for a while, giving people a second chance. Jesus went and preached things to angels, whom Jude says have no chance of redemption. We don't understand what's going on here, but if we think about this square in the middle of a passage that tells us of the importance of bringing us, of, of us bringing others the gospel, we see what it means. And that is that Christ himself is a preacher. There's an old witticism that is very true that God has only one son and he made him a preacher. He did. The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to preach the message of the gospel. And this is the wonder and the power of it. He did it through Noah. Do you see what happens here? 
that Jesus went in the Spirit. Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. You see, Jesus Christ is sent as a preacher and He preaches through His servants. Here, His servant Noah. Peter tells us in his second letter, in chapter 2, verse 5, that Noah was a herald of righteousness. You flip over a few pages later, you'll see that. Noah is called a herald of righteousness. Now, if I say the word herald, you might think of some medieval movie, maybe a Douglas Fairbanks movie for those of you that remember those things. And a herald is someone who comes out with the the trumpet that's about four feet long, puts it to his lips, and blows out a huge note and says what? Hear ye, hear ye. That's what Jesus did. But He didn't just blow a trumpet. He is a herald, a preacher of the Gospel through Noah. You see, the word for herald is also the word for preacher. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And he preached it by the power of the Spirit, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Then you say, wait a minute, how did Noah know about Jesus? How could Jesus use Noah? Do you remember back in chapter 1, verse 10, when Peter had told us how great a salvation we had, and he said concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ, in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Spirit of Christ, through Noah, preached the Gospel of Christ. That is how Noah is a herald of righteousness. You see, when we think of Noah, we think of an ark, don't we? Children? Sunday school, we think of Noah building the ark, and we think of the ark floating on the water, and then sometimes, perhaps in our unsanctified thoughts, we think, I wonder what the ark smelt like, or I wonder how tight the ark was, or I wonder how they got all the animals in. But you see, we miss something that the Bible tells us. That Noah built the ark, and just like Rome, the ark wasn't built in a day. As a matter of fact, Noah was a long time in building the ark. And he built the ark, and others came and mocked him. And they said, Noah, what are you doing? And he said, I'm building an ark because the heavens are going to open and rain's going to come down. And they said, Noah, what's rain? We've never seen water come out of the heavens. And they mocked him. And do you know how long Noah was building the ark? 120 years, the Bible. Now, I want you to imagine that. People coming up to your job site. Noah didn't just make an ark. The very fact of what he was building preached judgment, righteousness, and mercy. As Noah built the ark, day after day after day, and they came up to him and they said, Noah, why do you need an ark? And he said, God told me He's going to judge the world. And the only place there is salvation is in the ark. And they said, Noah, there's no God. There's no judgment. Why are you building this ark? And he said, God told me that we must repent. And if we don't repent, we will perish over and over 
Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and March and April and June and December and decade after decade after decade. How could we not think Noah was a preacher? Not a preacher. 120 years he stood up to the greatest mockery of all and he proclaimed that God exists, that God speaks, and that God shows mercy to sinners who repent. How could Noah do this but by the power of the Spirit and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's the only way possible. Jesus was present. Jesus came to earth even before He came as a baby in order to bring the Gospel message. This same Jesus was present preaching through the power of the apostles as they turned the whole world upside down with the message of the cross. Why is that important? Why does that matter to us? Anyone here met Noah? Anyone here had lunch with Andrew or Paul? No. Because that same Jesus who preached through Noah, that same Jesus who preached through Isaiah, that same Jesus who preached through this Peter, preaches now through you and through me. Through our actions, through our words, through our standing on the truth of Scripture. That same power that Noah had to stand up to the entire world, to live through the greatest cataclysm, the greatest disaster that has ever befallen the world, that same power is available to you. The power of the Word of God and God's truth. That is how the message is brought. We bring it. I stand here today in the line of Noah and the apostles and the great men of faith who have been preachers. And I bring you this word that if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you must repent. It is not an option. Judgment is coming. The world will be destroyed again, not with water, but with fire. And the only safety is found in the true ark, the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you feel the power of that message? That is the power that you have when you go to the office, Christian. It's the power at a mother's of preschool's meeting. It's even a power when you are outside, children, throwing a baseball. It's the power that is available to you right now. The power of Jesus. This is the critical importance of preaching. But it's not just that preaching is important. It is our critical need. We have a critical need for preaching as well. You see, Noah preached to those who were disobedient. They were in need of good news. These spirits in Noah's day did not obey. They did not obey God. They did not obey His Gospel. They did not see the truth of God's Word. They did not want to know God. Does that sound like anyone you know? Maybe a neighbor. Maybe a co-worker. Maybe a family member. Maybe a friend. The critical need of our day is not more education. The critical need of our day is not more money. The critical need of our day is nothing but the preaching of the Word of God, the message of the Gospel brought forth. This is what we need. You see, in Noah's day, they looked at Noah and they said, Oh, Noah, go dry up. Pass another drink. Who wants to marry my daughter? Who wants to have a party? That's what our Lord said in Matthew 24, that in the days of Noah there was eating and drinking and giving in marriage. Does that sound anything familiar to you? Today there's eating and drinking. It might not be the drinking of wine. It might be the drinking of Pepsi-Cola. But there's an ignoring of God. The giving in marriage. There is an entire generation before us 
planning life without God, in the absence of God. And what we have been called to do as God's people, the reason that we are building a building on Katie Gaston is so that we can tell others, you cannot plan for life apart from Jesus. It's vanity. It's like weeding your garden before the flood. It's like adding an addition before the rains came down in Noah's day. You must put first things first because God is patient. It's His goodness and His mercy that does not strike sinners dead the moment they are born. But this passage tells us that His patience has an end. You see, these spirits, these people who are now spirits, but who were back then in the days of Noah people, they are in prison. You see, that's what Peter's getting at here. He's not talking about Christ preaching to people in hell or disembodied spirits. We do this all the time in English, don't we? We say that President Bush was born in this certain day. We say Abraham Lincoln was born in a log cabin. Does that mean that when President Bush was born, he was president? No. It means the one who is now President Bush was born back then. The ones who are now spirits in prison, they were back then listening to preaching. And you see now, for them, judgment has come. They're in prison. God's patience is gone. The end is destruction. Do you see the critical need of preaching here? It's the only thing that saves. Well, this is the message, and this is how we bring the message. And then Noah, or excuse me, then Peter gives us a picture of what the message looks like in Noah. He tells us about Noah and his family. And he immediately reminds us that Noah suffered abuse for the gospel. Not just for his building of the ark, but also for his preaching. But that Noah trusted in God. Now think about this. Noah changed his entire life. And he didn't wait for God to respond a week from Tuesday. He spent 120 years waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And did God's promise fail? No. It came. What promise of God are you waiting for? Maybe you're waiting for God to send you a spouse. Maybe you're waiting for God to send you a child. Maybe you're waiting for God to send you some rest and peace from the difficulties that surround you. God's promises in Jesus Christ are always yea and amen. God is in the business of fulfilling His promises. Not always here. Not always now. But always. Noah trusted in God. And notice how Peter increases our trust for God. Do you notice what Peter does? It's a very interesting thing if you think about it. He says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, in which a few, that is, how many persons? Does it seem odd to you that Peter would say eight persons? It doesn't if you remember that Moses writes in Genesis that Noah, his wife, and who else? Three sons and their wives were in the ark. How many people? Kids, can we add it up? Eight. Do you see what Peter's doing here? He's saying the littlest of tiny details in God's Bible are not only true, they are so true that they are a spur to our assurance of salvation. Eight people, not a couple of people, not a bunch of people, not maybe nine, not I think maybe more than six. Eight. Exactly eight. Exactly as Genesis wrote. That was Peter's view of the Bible. Peter trusted the Lord. And 
They were brought safely through the water. They escaped devastation. Is that your hope today in the gospel? That in the midst of all difficulties, the gospel gets us through life and is taking us to a place of glory and forgiveness. When you think of the flood, never forget as you think that the flood waters drowned unrepentant sinners, that they lifted up the ark. One action, judgment and mercy. And Peter says, this is sort of like what you experience in baptism. Now what does this mean? He says, baptism is an antitype. It corresponds to the flood. You see, the flood brought death and salvation, but it also brought mercy and life. To whom did the flood bring death? To whom did it bring life? What was the difference? What was it based upon? Were the people on the high ground saved and the low ground killed? No. It was all based upon their standing with God. You see, it wasn't that there were certain types of water that drowned certain types of people. It was the same flood, and it was all based upon their standing with God. See, the ark didn't save Noah and his family, did it? God did. Whose idea was the ark? Whose specifications were for the ark? Who gave time to build the ark? Who shut the door of the ark? God. And just as we would look and we wouldn't say, well, it's a good thing that Noah was pretty smart and he got that airtight ark built. Without that ark, he'd have been killed. At the same way, we can't say, well, it's a good thing that I did that baptism right. Got that all together. Without that baptism, I'd be lost. No, it's God who saves. And He gives us a picture of how He saves in baptism. You see, it's not the external act of baptism. Baptism now saves you. He says, not as a removal of dirt, from the body. It's not the act of how much water you pour over somebody. It doesn't matter whether you sprinkle someone in baptism or immerse them or immerse them once or three times or facing east or facing west or in a pool or in a pond or in living water or in standing water. No, it is the answer of a conscience, a clear conscience toward God. You see, some people want this to be so. They want baptism to save you because then that means they don't need to live changed lives. They don't need to have a good conscience. They don't need to do anything but get it out of the way. In our day and age, we have a different way of dealing with this. It's called going forward. We go forward at a campfire or we go forward at a church service and we get it over with. But you see, it's not the external act. It's the answer of a good conscience. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the main point of this passage. Noah was a preacher. He wasn't a baptizer. It's John who's the Baptist, not Noah. Noah was a preacher. You see, Peter is pointing us again and again, over and over, to the message that is preached. That we would have a good answer, a good conscience, hearing the Word of God and obeying it. So what does this all mean to us? It means that we have a message and we can bring it to the world. And this message is powerful. It is life-changing. It is life-saving, just as it was for Noah. You see, your life, Christian, must be lived in light of what God has done. And this message must be brought to the whole world. And do you want to hear a very wonderful final blessing in this? 
as we bring the message to others, it's an encouragement to us. You see, that's how we are spurred on in the Christian life. We bring the message to others. How do you think Noah did it in year 114? Or in the fall of year 117? The message pushed him forward. Because he said to himself as he was pounding those nails, I'm going to be with the Lord. Is that your attitude today? Does that push you on through miserable days at work? Through horrible changing of diapers? Through kids showing up two hours later than they were supposed to? That's what the message is for. It's for you. It's for me. It's for the whole world. What a message we have. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have brought us this message of goodness and glory. And we ask, Lord, that You would make us heralds of righteousness here in this world, in this place. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.